Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Viewer discretion advised. This episode mentions sexual abuse and assault. If those are triggers to you, please enjoy one of my other episodes of Rot to the Core and join us again next week. Peace and blessings to you. And I'm sorry for what has caused your own trauma. People say that everyone is just a product of their upbringing. The grand debate between nature versus nurture. We have learned in our past lessons that this is pretty true. Some of our rotten people have been born bad, while others succumb to their horrible circumstances. Our rotten man today, at least to me, seems to be both. He was a man who was born rotten, and because of the trauma that was inflicted upon him, let that rot spread, not only throughout his whole identity, but unto others as well. He reminds me of that old saying, One bad apple spoils the bunch, because he spoiled the lives of so many, and sadly, most of them are lost to history. Come with me, and let's attempt to cut out some of the rot that was Carl Panzram. Magic mirror on the wall, who is the most rotten one of all? Hi, hello, and howdy, my darlings, and welcome to another lesson of Rotten to the Core. I am your not-so-evil queen, Joshua Waters, and this is the History Podcast about rotten people, where we attempt to learn a lesson or two that can help us in our current lives. Today's lesson is about a serial killer who seemingly lost his humanity and wanted to spread his pain to as many other people as possible. He himself was never shown any human kindness or compassion, and his resulting crimes are what came of his lifetime of pain, abuse, and trauma. I feel incredibly sad for the young Carl, but I have no sympathy for the monster that he would grow into. My belief is that we go through multiple versions of ourselves in each and every lifetime, and that it's okay to feel bad but still hate the same person. I mean, who doesn't hate a form of themselves that they used to be? But in my current stage, I couldn't be happier. I am very thankful that my nature and nurture led me to live a more optimistic way of life versus wishing to spread more negativity onto everyone else. Carl Panzram was born in East Grand Forks, Minnesota on June 28, 1891. His parents were German immigrant farmers who, like most immigrants, were pretty hardworking, strict, and didn't have a lot of money. 
Carl was the firstborn, but his parents ended up having five other sons and one daughter. He even claimed that all of his other siblings grew to be honorable and devoted farmers who minded their fields and did no harm to anyone. Which I do see as proof as to the natural nature of Carl as rotten. If it were all about his upbringing, then wouldn't at least one of his other siblings have turned out badly too? While being poor and from a strict family isn't enough to turn good fruit into bad, the rest of Carl's childhood certainly seems like enough to do the trick. When he was only seven, Carl's father did the old let's-go-get-a-pack-of-cigarettes trick, and the family never saw or heard from him again. To make up for the loss in the household and on the farm, all the children were forced to work every spare second they had. They legally had to keep attending school, but as soon as they were off, they would be working at home, often until the early hours the next morning. Carl said that it was common for them to only get around three hours of sleep before having to get up and go back to school. If that were me, I probably would have been killed by his mother. I did grow up in a family that had a small farm, and we did a laundry list of things that I absolutely hated. One time I even hid under my grandparents' bed in order to avoid chopping and stacking wood, breaking my back in the dirt, or, my least favorite, killing the livestock for food. And no, it wasn't because I was lazy. I just hated being around my mean old grandpa, and I didn't like to get dirty. My grandpa even had a test where he would make all the males in the family kill one of the animals before we began kindergarten. Mine was a little white rabbit, and I had no idea about the tradition or what was going to happen when he told me to reach in there and pick out your favorite bunny from the pen. I thought he was going to give it to me as a pet. That was until he handed me a hammer and told me that it was going to be dinner, and I had to kill it. All I'll say is that I attempted to comply, but rabbits scream like babies when they're scared, and so do I. I dropped that hammer and ran to the house and told my grandma on him. I was never forced to kill another animal, but it was served for dinner that night, and I sat at that table for hours until I was allowed to get up without taking a bite of it. See what I mean when I said I was thankful for how I turned out? I like to thank the compassion and caring I received from the women in my family for a big part of that. Carl, on the other hand, wasn't so lucky. Even though he was the oldest out of his brothers and sisters, the rest of them would pick on him and beat him up every opportunity they had, often teaming up to torture their brother over giving him any sliver of kindness. At the age of 11, after learning that there was a big wide world out beyond his family's farm, Carl made plans to hitch a ride on a passing train with the intention of finding his own place in the world. Since his family was Poe, he made the decision to rob a neighbor. He stole food like apples and cake, as well as a handgun for protection. And he even managed to jump aboard a train, and he thought he was on his way to bigger and better things. Unfortunately for him and his future victims, that wasn't the case. He was quickly found and arrested for his earlier robbery, and in 1903, a judge sent him to the Minnesota State Training School. 
Think of how mental asylums were in the early 1900s, but replaced mentally disabled people with nothing but young boys. The reform school held around 300 boys from the ages of 10 to 20 years old, and the men who worked there had little to no outside supervision. All of those poor boys were at the mercy of those adults, and the result was constant neglect, abuse, and I'd even go as far to say torture. Carl was sent there for the crimes of incorrigibility and for being quarrelsome upon arriving there on October 11th. The 11-year-old boy was taken into an office by a male guard. He was stripped, and then the man asked him about any and all sexual experiences that he had. He then examined all of his private parts and asked if he had committed fornication or sodomy and if he had ever masturbated. Tell me why that's important. Why was that important? The reform school followed a strict Christian training and grooming practice, and if any of the boys acted out or didn't earn good grades, they were subjected to an array of atrocities by the guards. The small school that Carl had been going to didn't teach him how to read very well, and his grades at the reform school weren't very good. He received a lot of punishment for the simple act of being somewhat illiterate. Because heaven forbid one of the men actually working there sit down and teaching a boy how to read instead of trying to beat the knowledge into him. This is when Carl began to grow a deep hatred of authority and religion and blamed both for all of his suffering. There was even a specific room donned the painting room where the workers would drag the boys to administer punishment. Every boy who came out of that room was always beaten and covered in bruises from either a wooden board, leather strap, whip, or heavy paddle. Now this is where I had to stop researching for a while. My grandpa is the one who always dealt out the punishment to my brother and I. It was either from his hand or mostly from his thick leather belt. However, a horsewhip or switch was used a few times. Like Carl, I was punished for insignificant things. My biggest crime as a child and the reason for most of my whippings was for lying. In our God-fearing home, that was the worst thing you could have done. I even remember pleading to take the whoopings for my brother as it hurt me a lot more to watch him cry than the actual belt did on my own rear. I grew accustomed to that, but never to see my brother in pain. Carl, however, decided to seek revenge on his abusers, and on July 7, 1905, he set up a device that ended up burning the building where the painting room was to the ground. As it was burning, Carl said that he laid in his bed and laughed at his victory. Eventually, some of the other boys taught Carl that it was in his best interest to play along with what the workers demanded and just tell them what they wanted to hear. Towards the end of 1905, Carl went before the parole board and managed to convince them that the school had reformed him. A quote from him, I was reformed all right. I had been taught by Christians how to be a hypocrite, and I learned more about stealing, lying, hating, burning, and killing. When he was finally paroled from the school, they gave Carl a suit, five bucks, which would amount to nearly $170 today, 
and put him on a train back home to his mother's farm. He used the money to buy fruit and candy and then made his way on home. Once he got back there, his mom made him immediately change out of his suit and back into his work clothes and just sent him back out to the farm. No hugs or pleasantries, just, oh, you're home? Well, get back to work already. His mom's own health was failing her, and I'm sure she had some resentment for him for even getting into trouble in the first place and leaving her with one less pair of hands to work. Within a few months after returning home, Carl had had it. He had only known suffering in his short life and felt no love from his own mother. In January 1906, he ran away from home again, and again, he jumped aboard a freight train and left. He would not be returning. Along with his newfound freedom, Carl also quickly learned just how vulnerable being a 14-year-old boy alone was. Shortly after he left, he was making his way by freight train towards Montana. While on board, he met four drifters in one of the boxcars. They lied and told him that they would give him better clothes and a warm place to sleep. What happened next is something I wish on no one, especially a child. All four of the men sexually brutalized the helpless young Carl. This is why I mentioned that I have both sympathy and hatred for Carl Panzram. Sympathy for him as a child, but hatred for him as an adult. Another quote from him, I left that boxcar sadder, sicker, but a wiser boy. I made up my mind that I would rob, burn, destroy, and kill everywhere I went and everybody I could for as long as I lived. The last of the sliver of humanity he had left had been taken from him, and he began to see other people as his hated enemies. It would seem that he even hated himself, for how could anyone who had a love for themselves do what he would go on to do? Not long after that attack, Carl was caught for burglary and sent to yet another reform school in Miles City, Montana. By that time, he was still 14, but had grown quite tall and weighed just under 200 pounds. He even developed a reputation at the school for being defiant, and the guards tormented him more due to his large size and attitude. One of the guards did it so much that Carl retaliated by beating him with a wooden board that had a metal core. He didn't kill the man, but he was sick for several weeks after. His punishment for that was being beaten and locked in isolation with more supervision from the staff. While he was in solitary confinement, he made the decision that he was going to escape. Even if it cost his own life, he was going to get out of that prison. By 1907, with the help of another boy named Jimmy Benson, they managed to escape the school prison and made it to a nearby town. Once there, they stole guns and began riding trains, robbing and burning everything they could get their hands on. Carl favored breaking into churches, stealing offerings, and burning them as his form of retribution for his religious torment while he was in Minnesota. Eventually, the boys parted ways, each with a gun and a few hundred dollars, and Carl took on the new name of Jefferson Baldwin. He then made his way further west to Helena, Montana. 
Shortly after arriving, he made the decision to join the army after overhearing a recruiter one night at a bar. He then lied about his age, I'm sure his large size helped, and enlisted. It didn't last long as he was charged with insubordination on his first day after refusing to work detail. He was then put into army jail multiple times over several months for petty infractions. After that, he continued to disobey and even broke into his quartermaster's room and robbed him before trying to go AWOL. Then he was again arrested and jailed. For that, he got a court-martial and even went before a jury where he pleaded guilty to larceny. He received three years of confinement and hard labor and a dishonorable discharge from the army by an order signed by future president, who was then Secretary of War, William H. Taft. Remember Taft for a little later in our lesson. After Carl's sentencing, he was put in chains and shackled inside of a cattle car and sent 1,000 miles away to Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary. The entire trip, he was also deprived of any food or water and had to resort to soiling himself. In 1910, at the age of 19, Carl literally didn't have a pot to piss in. He had no friends, no family, and no money. The only thing Carl possessed was a hatred for anything and everyone around him, as well as a desire to cause others as much pain as he had to go through in his childhood. Over the next three years, Carl jumped trains and traveled to several states taking on multiple names and committing a plethora of crimes along the way. His past traumas had now shaped him into a hardened criminal. Well, as criminals do, Carl kept committing crimes, and they eventually caught up with him, again, while in Montana. He was arrested, this time under the name Jefferson Davis, and sent up the river to Deer Lodge which to me sounds a lot more like a Smoky Mountain retreat than a prison. While there, he used his giant size and reputation to run the place, at least among the other prisoners. He did make an escape plan with his old acquaintance, Jimmy Benson, but Carl was the only one able to make it out. Jimmy had a last-minute transfer. He escaped, but he was caught again, and another year added to his sentence. To pass the time, Carl said that he, well, I'm sure you can all guess what the biggest man in a prison with a thing for dominating and sodomy did to all the other prisoners. I'll just leave it at that. When he got out of there, he continued to get around by jumping on trains and kept on stealing. Yet again, to no surprise, that led him to get arrested for larceny and sent to Oregon State Penitentiary in June 1915 with a seven-year sentence. Oregon State Penitentiary was notorious for inflicting torture and abuse on their prisoners. Things like whipping, starvation, isolation, and beatings. Even chaining those who got out of line to a wall or hanging them from the rafters. What kind of Ramsey Bolton-style prison was this? A quote from Carl, or should I say Jefferson, about his time there. I swore I would never do that seven years, and defied the warden and all of his officers to make me. But the warden swore I would do every damn day, or he would kill me. 
He did make an attempt to escape in September 1917, but was apprehended and sent back. Then, after using a hacksaw to get his window bars out, made another escape attempt. The guards immediately found out, but even with their bullets whizzing past him, Carl ran away and vanished into the nearby woods. From there, he used his favorite means of transportation, trains. He also shaved off his mustache and changed his name yet again, this time to John O'Leary, as he made his way east. By 1920, Carl was dwelling in Connecticut and passed the time robbing drunk men, burglarizing homes, and forcing himself onto young boys. One night, he broke into a large mansion and decided to steal jewelry, bonds, and a forty-five handgun. Colt forty-five and two zigzags. After he was in a safe place, he rummaged through his loot and noticed a particular name on the bonds he stole. It was none other than the man responsible for his sentence at Leavenworth and ex-president William H. Taft. Talk about a small world. The man that literally sent him to prison is the man he ended up robbing unintentionally. With his loot in hand, Carl traveled to the Lower East Side of the island of Manhattan and sold as much of his treasures as he could. This time, he had a plan for the money, and instead of hopping aboard another train car, he bought himself a yacht. He then sailed around a little bit and concocted a devious plan of murder. After noticing the amount of sailors on leave who were looking for work on another boat, he started scouting out his next victims. He would find a sailor who was looking for work and hire them to come work on his boat promising them anything they wanted to get them on board. Once there, he actually did let them put in a day or two worth of labor until he would get them drunk and sexually violate them before using his William H. Taft handgun to remove them from the living. To get rid of the evidence, he tied a rock to their bodies and then he would throw them overboard near a place called Execution Rock's Lighthouse. Thankfully, his boat eventually met with a strong storm and was smashed to pieces. Carl barely made it to the shore with his life, and two men that he had on board were able to escape. Carl then kept with his newfound boat life and stowed away on a ship that sailed him to South Africa, where he found work on an oil rig. Also while there, he added another victim to his list. This time, another boy who was only 11. I think by now we have an understanding of how Carl liked to hurt his victims, no matter what their age was. So for the rest of this, just fill in the blanks, because I I just hate saying it. After that poor boy, he hired six men to join him on a crocodile hunt. Once they were in a secluded spot surrounded by crocs, Carl shot all six of them twice and threw them overboard to be consumed by the hungry reptiles. He then spent time going upriver, an actual river, not a prison, looking for more victims and the occasional job before stowing away on another large ship and headed back to the U.S. in 1922. In July, Carl was lurking around Salem, Massachusetts and captured a 12-year-old boy named George McMahon and brought him to a secluded spot and fill in the blank before killing him with a large rock across his head. 
The next year, he did the same thing to another boy whom he found begging for money. He did the same thing he did to all of his victims to that poor boy and then strangled him with his own belt before further violating the boy's dead body even more. I don't mean to make light of what happened to his victims, especially the children, by not saying what he did. My brain just physically can't bring itself to speak it. I will also never understand how someone could do that, especially after the same thing was done to them as a child. My mentality has always been to use the bad things that have happened to me as an opportunity to help others, not to have to go through that same pain. Only a few weeks after that, Carl was caught by a guard and arrested again at a train station after he was found going through some suitcases looking for stuff to steal. He told them his name was John O'Leary and was later indicted for that burglary. He was sentenced to five years at Sing Sing Prison, but didn't stay there long before he was transferred to the Clinton Correctional Facility, which was better suited for more hardened criminals and nicknamed the Hellhole. It was known as one of the most brutal prisons in the country. The prisoners there were seen by guards as less than animals and they treated them with nothing but brutality and animosity. Carl attempted an escape after a few months, but fell from one of the walls and broke both of his legs and injured his spine. An example from him about how the guards treated prisoners, I was dumped into my cell without medical attention or surgical attention whatsoever. My broken bones were not set. My ankles and legs were not put into a cast. The doctor never came near me, and no one else was allowed to do anything for me. At the end of the 14 months of constant agony, I was taken to the hospital where I was operated on for my rupture, and one of my testicles was cut off. I suffered more agony, always in pain, crawling around like a snake with a broken back, seething with hatred and a lust for revenge. The last two years and four months confined in isolation with nothing to do except brood. I hated everybody I saw. Carl was kept in that isolation for his last two years and four months because after his surgery, he was caught buggering a fellow inmate. He was released from Clinton in June 1928, but that, yet again, wouldn't last long. He went straight back into robbery and even murdered another man in Baltimore before getting arrested again and sent to a jail in Washington, D.C. Only this time, he didn't give the guards a fake name. He actually told them his real name, and after some time, he started to divulge some of his past crimes. Well, the guards looked into some of them and found that he had multiple warrants out for him in several states. It would appear that Carl was growing tired of his life of spreading pain and misery to all those he came into contact with. And surprisingly, he became friends with one of the guards, who was named Henry Lesser, after Henry took pity on Carl and gave him a dollar to buy things at the commissary. That must have been the first act of human kindness that Carl had been shown in so long, and he took Henry's gesture to heart. Eventually, their friendship grew enough that Carl started to confide in Henry 
about the details of his life and of his crimes. Their unlikely friendship, I don't know if that's the right word for it. Henry's compassion for another human led to Carl actually writing about his entire past, which ended up with a full 20,000-word confession. A quote from it, All of my associates, all of my surroundings, the atmosphere of deceit, treachery, brutality, degeneracy, hypocrisy, and everything that is bad and nothing that is good. Why am I what I am? I'll tell you why. I did not make myself what I am. Others had the making of me. After that, there were more accusations brought against Carl and even a few witnesses who were able to identify him in a lineup. He must have realized the gig was finally up and Carl wrote a letter to District Attorney Clark in Salem, Massachusetts. I do not change my former confession in any way. I committed that murder. I alone am guilty. I not only committed that murder, but 21 besides. And I assure you, here and now, that if I ever get free and have the opportunity, I shall sure knock off another 22. His trial began on November 12, 1928, and he refused to have a lawyer. Carl was found guilty on all charges and sentenced to 25 years at the Leavenworth, Kansas prison that Carl had stayed at before. And when he got back there, he told the warden, I'll kill the first man that bothers me. The only thanks you and your kind will ever get from me for your efforts on my behalf is that I wish you all had one neck and that I had my hands on it. I have no desire whatsoever to reform myself. My only desire is to reform people who try to reform me. I believe that the only way to reform people is to kill them. Because he was so violent, he was given laundry duty while at the prison in an effort to keep him out of the general public and try to keep the other inmates safe. Well, apparently, the prison didn't get the memo or didn't believe Carl was as dangerous as he was because they only had one guard watching over him in the laundry room. And after being written up by the guard several times, who was named Robert Wonk, Carl took a metal bar and killed him with it before going after the other inmates, who were now locked with him in the laundry. So, Carl went back to trial in April of 1930 and actually pleaded not guilty. He was found guilty as there were 15 witnesses and they had the murder weapon. So, he was sent back to Leavenworth until September 5th when he would be given the death penalty somewhere between 6 and 9 a.m. And as he was dragged out of that courtroom, he left cussing out the judge and the jury. On Friday, September 5th, 1930, Carl was brought to the gallows close to 6 a.m. He spoke about how he cursed his mother for bringing him into the world and spit in the executioner's face as he put the hood over Carl's head. His last words were, Hurry up, you Hoosier bastard. I could kill ten men while you're fooling around. They released the trap doors below him, and Carl Panzram was dead by 6.18 a.m. Then he was buried in the prison cemetery with an ID stone that read 31614. He was no longer able to use his pain to hurt others ever again. 
Whew. I'm sorry. I know that lesson was a rough one. But I also believe that we need to know some of the worst of humanity so we can not only give some remembrance to their victims, but also from what we can learn from it. I know Carl has taught me to learn how to get better at taking responsibility for my actions, triggers, and mental health even more than I already do. To learn how to forgive others who have hurt me in my past, not for their sake, but my own. He is also a prime example of what can happen when you never forgive people and allow the things that they've done to you make you rotten from the inside out. I hope you all learned something from the rotten life of Carl Panzram, and I thank you for joining me on our lesson. I do appreciate each and every one of you, and until next week, be happy, find peace, and for heaven's sake, don't hurt anyone. If you enjoy Rotten to the Core, please follow me on Instagram or join me on Patreon. Both of those are at It's Rotten to the Core. You can also listen to me on my other podcast, Mystery Inc., which I do with my brother Shane. We have a Facebook group called Shane and Josh's Rabbit Hole, where we will be interacting and having a plethora of extra fun, foul, mysterious, rotten, and historical things a-brewing. Join us there and have a great week ahead, everyone. Bye. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.